We believe emotional well-being is intricately tied to spiritual connection. We know that there is hope for those of us who have experienced trauma, even profound trauma, and that's why we created the Universe Is Your Therapist podcast. We envision a world of healing and connection and teach you simple but powerful practices to help you come home to your highest self, to your truest identity. We believe you are a divine soul who's deeply loved and that the entire universe conspires for your good. You're valued beyond comprehension, and we want to help you realize that. You are not broken, you are loved, and you can heal. Hi, my name is Dr. Amy Hoyt, and together with my sister, Lena, a licensed marriage and family therapist, we will lead you on a journey of self-discovery and self-love. So today we're going to talk about beginner's mind and how it relates to trauma and mending trauma and some of the things we can do to cultivate a beginner's mind. So Lena, what does beginner's mind mean to you? What I think about with beginner's mind is how difficult it can be when we have encountered adverse experiences that have contributed to trauma. One thing that happens pretty instantly with trauma is that we have wiring that gets established immediately. And that wiring is subconscious and it's designed to protect us from future incidents that may look, sound, smell, seem the same as what has happened before. That contributes to a lot of rigid thinking because the brain that wants to be safe is thinking that if things are a certain way, the person will be safe. And rigid thinking is the opposite of beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is the ability to allow that there are other possible explanations, other possible possibilities, other possible opinions. It is the idea that we can learn from others. I know it does come out of Buddhism, and I feel like it's been used, of course, in Buddhist philosophy, but also within the spiritual and therapeutic traditions and fields. One of the things that's been helpful for me when conceiving of beginner's mind is to go into every conversation with the idea that I don't know everything. Even going into conversations where it's my area of expertise, such as religion or gender studies, understanding that First of all, opinions are formed a lot of times from thoughts and feelings, which are experiences produce thoughts and feelings, and that we all have different experiences. Therefore, we are going to have different thoughts and different feelings and different personalities, even from the same events. So obviously, the easiest example is children growing up in the same family. There can be an event and each child can walk away with a different perception, thought, feeling, and opinion about the event. That's important for me to remember as I'm even working with my children, that they can teach me things because they have a different perspective. When I'm working with colleagues, that I can learn from those who have different experiences than me and different opinions. I think one of the things... Um, that I see a lot of people worry about is if opening themselves up too much will lead to a type of relativism where there's no real moral compass for them. And they want that safety of having their moral framework, but also want to open up to new ideas. And I think that's the balance. I know it was for me as I was learning about all different religions and spiritual traditions in graduate school, 
looking at my own moral and religious framework and spiritual commitments and then comparing them to what I was learning and deciding where I wanted to fit. And ultimately, I decided to stay with my tradition I was raised in. But I would say that was one of the most painful processes of my life was becoming a beginner in that particular area and reworking some of my core opinions about life and God, really. So for me, beginner's mind is really beautiful. And it's also fraught with a lot of uncertainty, which as someone who has had trauma can be super uncomfortable. But when compared to the fixed mindset, I feel like I am a more well-rounded person, a better friend, a more loving person when I enter conversations and institutions and academic research with a beginner's mind. So that's kind of how I conceive of it just staying radically open while maintaining a sense of my moral framework. What you're talking about really resonates for me. When we have rigid thinking in order to protect ourselves, then any challenge to that thinking we experience is very threatening. And it's important for us to get present and to engage in grounding techniques so that we have a conscious awareness that right now in this moment we are safe and that we have choices and that hearing about different options or different possibilities does not dictate a change, that we have the capacity to hear and learn and grow and then make decisions from there. And when you are in fight or flight, the rigidity becomes automatic and subconscious And then we either cut the conversation off or we start arguing. One concept that you and I have talked a lot about that I've introduced in my practice with my clients is the concept of benevolent curiosity. And I've seen it be particularly helpful with parents and teenagers. Oftentimes, teenagers have really sound reasons for why they behave a certain way that are just baffling to a parent. And if a parent can kindly inquire with a desire to understand where their child is coming from, it creates an opportunity to have communication that leads to understanding and resolution instead of arguing or communication shutdown. And we can even be benevolently curious about ourselves. We can have a beginner's mind about ourselves. As we learn to increase our awareness of ourselves and how We are impacted either by our thoughts, our feelings, by events, by other things. We can become curious about how we are impacted and why that impact is that impact. What has happened for us or what are our thoughts or what have we experienced that creates an impact that we would not have anticipated? And if we can be curious about why we're reacting the way we are, we do a couple of things. We stay in the present moment and we become the observer of ourselves so we can learn. And if we can do all that without judgment, that enhances our ability to grow and to really enjoy the process of learning and the process of difference. I appreciate that. I know I tend to be really uncomfortable with uncertainty. And I feel like as I open myself up to beginner's mind in each new area of life, for instance, when I became a beginner in studying religious traditions, or when I became a beginner at studying gender studies, or as a mom, with each new role or subject 
I start with, it's so uncomfortable because my brain is telling me, for some reason, it's telling me I'm not safe. This doesn't feel good. I can't get my bearings initially because I'm trying to get a lay of the land. And let's talk about how that can sometimes be a trauma response when we're constantly scanning for danger when we've had trauma. And how do we tell the difference between true danger and the feeling of danger that we may get when we're growing and we start to feel uncomfortable? In my practice, we talk a lot about healthy risks. The brain is actually pretty poor at accurately gauging threat. And when we can become curious and learn about different things, and while we're doing that, become aware of what our process is or what our thoughts are, when we are able to identify that the hypervigilance that oftentimes comes out of a traumatic event no longer is serving us, when we're able to be present in the present moment, that can help us to calm down our danger signals. I often talk to my clients about how safety is oftentimes a perception. It's, a, it's an assessment that we do through our thoughts. And if our thoughts are based on what's happened before or what might happen in the future, we are not present. And that gets us into a place where we can't accurately gauge whether or not we're in a position of safety. When we can't accurately gauge that, then we go into fight or flight, and that instantly shuts off beginner's mind because we're trying to protect ourselves. One of the things I've been taught is that my thoughts actually often need to be poked at to make sure they're accurate. And when I have a thought or a story I'm telling myself about a situation to ask, is this true? Is this actually true? And how do I know it's true? And then another thing I've been instructed to do is to sit, feel my sit bones, and to notice how my body feels. And that by reconnecting my thoughts with my body, I can get into the present moment. And then I can start truly, instead of projecting what might happen or worrying about what happened in the past, I can really deal with the right now. And I think that's what you were referring to when you were talking about grounding grounding ourselves. So sometimes people will count their breaths, they'll wiggle their toes, they will unclench their jaw, and just kind of resetting and connecting the body and the thoughts and then assessing where we are from there. Is that something that you find helpful at all? I think it's very valuable. And if somebody is finding that difficult to do, one of the most impactful grounding exercises that I've seen both for myself and in my work with clients is that you close your eyes and you listen for five separate and distinct sounds. And when you do that, your limbic brain, which is responsible for fight or flight, it is not able to stay in that state of mind. Your brain moves from your limbic brain into your prefrontal cortex when you're listening for five separate and distinct sounds because you are profoundly present listening for those different sounds. One thought that did occur to me while you were talking is that those of us who are considered high achievers are those of us who are dedicated to being the best that we can be, oftentimes have difficulty with the learner's curve. And you're talking about being really uncomfortable 
with beginner's mind in these different areas of your life. The human brain does not like uncertainty and it does not like ambivalence and it does not like uncertainty. And so when we have a sense of uncertainty, in order to ride, uh, ride the wave, we have to get present and know that there is a learning curve for all things in our lives. And as we seek to grow in a certain area in our life, we will encounter challenges. And if we can't tolerate the distress that comes with the challenges and learn how to walk through the challenges and ride the wave of uncertainty or fear, then it's really difficult for us to grow. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about shame. And that just keeps coming through my mind because when I am in beginner's mind, especially before I started doing all of the work. For listeners, as a background information, from a pretty young age, I was involved in recovery and 12-step programs. I had done group therapy, individual therapy, all sorts of interventions. And it really wasn't until I started marrying the mind-body-spirit connection where I was using meditation, journaling, gratitude lists, and all of the things that actually incorporated my body into healing that I feel like I turned a really major corner mentally and emotionally. And so for me, I feel so fortunate that I don't struggle with shame as much as I used to, but it was so prevalent, especially starting anything new. In fact, it was so strong that I wouldn't try anything new for a fear of not doing it right, which was coming out of a place of shame. And so when we have beginner's mind and we're feeling shame, how do we combat that? How do we move through that so that we can continue to work on our rigid thinking and open ourselves up? I think shame is one of the most paralyzing emotions that we can experience. Shame is different than guilt. Guilt is about our behavior and we're able to see our behavior as distinct and separate from ourselves. Shame is about how there's something wrong with us. And I don't think we can be in beginner's mind and have shame at the same time because shame will paralyze us and it will place us in fight or flight response. And we won't be able to be curious because we'll be too defended. With shame, if we are able to have more practice at identifying that we are all human and that as humans, we cannot be perfect. We can gift ourselves with the concept that our behavior is separate from who we are. One example of this is labeling, and I see it a lot in my office. So if a parent is frustrated with a child who is not doing their chores or who is not studying in a manner that the parent thinks is acceptable, then it's really easy for the parent to call the child lazy. And anytime we engage in labeling, lazy, selfish, that those sort of labels, what we're doing is we're labeling somebody's motivation, but we don't recognize that we're doing that. So one antidote to that is to be very clear about what, about what you see or heard, not what you think or feel. That's so interesting because, you know, this was 20 years ago when I was living in a halfway house. I had one year almost of how do you feel? And I was taught to communicate with my feelings. And I think there's so much value in recognizing our feelings. But can you talk us through the difference between communicating about how you feel versus the facts of the event and what that does for the listener? Sure. My favorite example is the example of 
let's say I make a, an appointment with a friend to have lunch and this friend is a half hour late and doesn't call or text to let me know what's going on. The human brain's natural tendency is to ascribe negative motivation for that. My friend doesn't care about me. My friend doesn't value my time, that sort of thing. And those assumptions will keep us in fight or flight so solidly that we won't be able to actually engage the part of our brains that looks for other possible explanations. So when I decide that I know the motivation for something, that my child is lazy and that's why they won't do their chore, then I don't have the opportunity to be in beginner's mind about what else might be happening in that scenario. And I'm approaching it from a rigid thinking standpoint, which will guarantee 100% of the time my distress. If I say to myself, my friend is a half hour late, that's a fact. But my assumption that my friend doesn't care about my time or about our friendship is not a fact. So describing what you see or hear can be really valuable in sticking with the experience without having it filtered through your thoughts, opinions, your fears, and your worries. So what would that look like if I were the friend who was 30 minutes late and I sit down and of course, I'm going to say, Lena, I am so sorry I'm late. I just couldn't get the kids going. I just, I'm so sorry. How do you respond so that you're being integrous and true to who you are? Because for me, I start drinking when I am not actually being integrous with my feelings and my thoughts to other people. Those are very big red flags for me in my recovery because I start living outside of authenticity. So what do you, Lena, say to me when I'm a half hour late to where you're not talking about necessarily only your feelings, but you're staying in beginner's mind? What does that look like? It looks like me saying, I'm really glad that you're okay, because that's actually my first response. And that's one reason why people get so dysregulated around changes in plans or people running late or not being kept abreast of situations is that it triggers a lot of fear for people. That something bad has that something happened. Bad has happened. And then when you sit down in front of me, I'm not just responding to you being 30 minutes late. I'm responding to my fear that you are in a terrible car accident. And I spent the last 30 minutes fretting about how you were. And that eliminates the opportunity for a productive conversation. If during that 30 minutes, I have said to myself, all right, list five possible explanations for why Amy's late. One might be that she dropped her phone down the toilet. And so she couldn't let me know. And then it took her 15 minutes to get the phone out of the toilet. And then she has her twins, one of whom is always asking questions and the other of whom is always designing beautiful fantasy worlds <laughs> that, that would not put their shoes on. Another could be that her car broke down or that she needed a jump. In this day and age of modern communication, we expect instant responses and it's made it harder for us to tolerate humanness, actually. Yeah. And the quiet of the unknown. So I'm doing my own work in that half hour where I'm imagining to myself that as a human, you may encounter obstacles that might make you late, that the fact you haven't texted me or called me does not have a meaning behind the importance of our friendship or relationship. And recognizing that 
I can assume all sorts of things about why you're 30 minutes late. It's going to be extremely unusual for me to come up with some kind of benign or optimistic reason you're late. I'm not going to think you're late because you're planning a surprise party for me. <laughs> I'm late because I'm buying you flowers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what do you say to me? I say to you, I'm glad you're okay. I appreciate you letting me know. And this is powerful, people. If they are my feelings, they are my problem to resolve. If I have feelings about you being 30 minutes late, they are not your problem. They are my feelings and they are my opportunity to resolve and to deal with. So if I decide that I'm going to be impatient or rude to you because you're 30 minutes late, then I am essentially turning my power over to you and saying, because you're not behaving in a way that I appreciate, like, or agree with, now you're going to dictate my mood, my reaction, and my emotions. Now, would it be appropriate? Because this goes so counter to what I was taught in therapeutic culture years ago. Would it ever be appropriate to say, I was really scared. I know that's not your problem, but I felt really scared and it hurts my feelings that you weren't on time because time is my most valuable asset. There's part of that that's really awesome and part of that that I'm a little hesitant about. When you say to me, I was really scared and I'm glad you're okay. And I was really upset because I was so scared. I think that's marvelous because you're owning your experience. When you say that I hurt your feelings, you have now turned your power over to me. And it's actually much more accurate to say, I have decided to let my feelings be hurt. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. The reason why that's powerful is because if I have decided to let my feelings be hurt, I can decide not to let my feelings be hurt. And if you have a friend that perpetually is late for non-emergent, just they just tend to wake up late and not be able to get there in time, you then have the choice whether or not to set up appointments and lunches with them. Absolutely. And in those cases, I used to be this friend. <laughs> I was never on time for anything. You remember as a family, you guys would always give me a 15 minute or 30 minute lead time. And I was able to change that in my 30s, thank goodness. But if the person is somebody that I value and I know that this is not something they're doing on purpose, then I bring something to read or I bring something to work on because the relationship is more important to me than dictating how that person shows up. I just want to push back a little bit on something that keeps snagging in my mind. And that is, for whatever reason, I don't generally feel important to people who chronically are not on time for me if we have a lunch. Since I don't have a lot of free time and I am very selective about when I spend my free time not doing work or family, it doesn't feel good. And I guess I'm wondering, is it ever appropriate to share that with that person that the dynamic isn't feeling good? It is if your desire is to resolve it, but it's none of your friend's business how you feel, except for that you're in an important relationship together and how we feel and experience each other allows us to either grow or contract our relationship. And so as a courtesy, if you find yourself contracting from that relationship because of the perpetual lateness, that might be an appropriate time to say, I really value our friendship. 
I'm finding myself distancing myself because my time is so valuable to me and I choose very carefully how to spend my time. And I'm not sure, I don't know if I'm as valuable to you. And maybe we can talk through what it means for you when you're running late versus what it means for me so that we can continue this friendship. Sure. Or you can say to somebody, I value our friendship. I know that my time is so valuable that I think it would be helpful for me if we made appointments for you to come to my house, because that way I can do some of the things I need to do. I know sometimes you have a hard time getting here on time. I'm not sitting in a restaurant twiddling my thumbs, but instead I'm going to be able to do the things I need to do without growing my resentment because you're not showing up to our our committed time. That makes a lot of sense. And granted, right now, I think there's almost no one who would be mad about being in a restaurant during COVID. <laughs> if that were even it's a so realm of possibility, <laughs> I think people would be so excited no matter if their friends were late or not. So obviously this is, you know, in a non-COVID scenario where life is moving rapidly and you're constantly out of your house, which of course, we've all had quite a break from most of us this year. Okay, let's move on to how rigidity makes us feel safe. So we're talking about beginner's mind. We're talking about, I mean, you can see that I have a, a natural propensity towards rigidity and rigid thinking. That's something I'm constantly working on. How does rigidity make us feel safe? It's a false illusion of safety, actually, because rigid thinking creates more distress for us because we're unable to go with the flow or unable to think of benign possibilities for behaviors that we find upsetting. But the survival part of our brain believes that rigidity, if things are done in a certain way to a certain standard or in a certain time frame, that everything will be okay. And that's a fallacy. It's a false sense of security. It's safety. a false sense of security. And it is a subconscious sense of security that occurs in order to let me back up for just a second. What happens in trauma is that the, the neural pathways get wired together in a formation that then gets wrapped in fat. It's called myelination, and it's a shortcut. And the brain does this for our heart rate, for our sweat glands, for the frequency of our blinking. The brain doesn't have the capacity to consciously think of everything that needs to be done to keep our organism, our bodies alive and well. So when we have this idea, or excuse me, when we've had a trauma and then the wiring gets set down instantly and deeply, then consciously we have no idea that we're being rigid in our thinking. I have no idea my rigid expectations are creating conflict in our relationship. I think your behavior is creating conflict in the relationship. So it is a way of bypassing self-reflection. And that truly is dangerous to beginner's mind because we will never grow if we cannot conceive that we don't have all the answers. And not only is it dangerous to beginner's mind, it's dangerous to our happiness, our sense of satisfaction, our sense of competence, and our sense of relationship. So when I think about the universe and the beginner's mind, I think honestly about how I had to go back to beginner's mind in order to really access my true spiritual sense that because I was raised in an organized religion, which I value and I am still a part of, I did leave for a while, but I am definitely a full member of my tradition. What I had to do, however, is kind of suspend a lot of the formal religious beliefs and really go into beginner's mind about 
meditation and breath work and these different healing modalities that I didn't learn in an organized setting. One way I think beginner's mind can be really helpful in the therapeutic journey is allowing for the possibility that God or the universe works in very different ways in many, many different ways, and that all good comes from the divine. And if it is something that will heal you, it is good. And that is one of the ways I was able to let go of some of my preconceived ideas that made delving into body work a little scary for me. That's lovely. And you really have made that such a big part of your journey. Well, I remember the first time I was invited to do a breathwork meditation. I was, of course, nervous because I had never done it. And it was over Zoom. So, you know, I, I felt less vulnerable being in my own space, in my own room. But I, I didn't know what to expect. And there was this particular person, as she led us through, talked a lot about the divine feminine which I don't feel resistant to at all. I don't feel scared by the idea of a female God or a female creator. I actually believe there is a female creator in tandem with a male creator that work together. But I can see how if I didn't already have that belief, how that could have been a little scary to go into another belief system or open up to something outside of the traditional male model of one male God or the father God. I think keeping myself open to the possibility that there are so many ways to heal. We don't expect to go to church and have our arm repaired. We go to a doctor. We don't expect to go to our pastor and necessarily have him understand cognitive behavioral therapy or have been trained in specific therapeutic tools. And so I think it's reasonable to look at other spiritual practices as part of a process of healing and working towards the divine. When you mentioned beginner's mind, I think when you talk about how the concept of the feminine divine was not off-putting to you, if it had been, how would you have used your beginner's mind or that concept to have joined into that breath work workshop more fully? That's a really good question. I believe one of the most critical skills I was ever taught was in the 12 steps. And that was pretty early on when I got sober. And what I learned is that you go and you take what is going to help you and then you let go of anything else. You leave it all behind. And so if someone's you know, speaking at a meeting and they're talking about their experience of sobriety, or you can you know, it works in business as well. You can have someone teaching you a concept at school or in a business meeting, and you already know quite a bit of it, or it doesn't really apply to your particular role or situation. You can always take nuggets of what does apply and just forget the rest. And that is definitely what I do in my own life in all sorts of settings. So I imagined I would have done that, you know, just kind of said, instead of goddess, I'm going to say God, or instead of she, I'm going to say the universe, if I felt the need. And so I guess I want to encourage listeners to have the beginner's mind when they're doing the work and know that they will be taken care of, that they can hold on to their beliefs firmly, their spiritual practices firmly, and utilize a few of these other practices that yes, some of them are originating in other spiritual practices, but the 
use for them is so broad and so helpful. And just letting our brain be okay and know that we're safe, even if we use a practice that we're not familiar with. I think that's awesome advice. When we have something new presented to us, that actually is one of my very favorite concepts of the 12 steps is that you take what you like and you leave the rest. And when we have something new presented to us, sometimes the brain can become alarmed because it's different than what we had previously understood, or the brain can even experience it as threatening. And being able to grab the nuggets that work for you and then leave the rest behind is really a hallmark of flexible thinking that we've been talking about. And the flexible thinking is part of what helps us heal so that we can have more joy and abundance in our lives. Otherwise, we're too invested in a certain way and we can't control that way. Sure. And it's what we've talked about before, that routine is the illusion of safety. Thank you so much for talking to us about Beginner's Mind. And we will be with you all next week or in a few days or whatever. You can cut that out. Okay. <laughs> Yay! Every week we give away fun swag. And if you want to enter, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcast or go on your Instagram stories and talk about the episode and tag us at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. It really means so much to us that you take the time to listen and engage with us. And we love you all and know that together we can build a beautiful world. There's so many good episodes coming up. So definitely subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And go ahead and leave us a review because it is free and it only takes a minute and it would really mean so much to us. Finally, if you're inspired by this episode and you think of someone who would love it or learn from it, feel free to send them the link or post about it on Instagram and tag us and we'll repost a few. Again, that's at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. We love you. We'll be back in a few days. Keep healing.